I'm Austin. I'm Mike. We are the test drivers. And we put tech through its paces. And oh boy, tech season is back at full swing and we have got one seriously packed episode. But even though tech season is back in swing and we've got new products to talk about, we've also got some like, I think we're starting and ending today's episode with some weird topics. <laughs> so like at the end of the we're episode ambitious. today, we're actually going to talk about Formula One a little bit and we'll get to why. <laughs> there is a reason we'll get to why. But I put a note in our document during our last recording to touch base on and talk about uh, your NFT video, because you said during the last episode that your video mm -hmm. about NFTs might not even be live by the time the episode goes up, and you wouldn't explain why. And it's not. So <laughs> what happened? Okay, so the short story here, and this is actually not that uncommon, right? So there's a little bit of backstory, but the short version of it is this. The video didn't do well. I yoinked it down, mm -hmm. right? But so this kind of speaks to like a bigger, and like we're going to take a little bit of a detour into YouTube nerd town for a second. But the way that we work on the main channel specifically is every video is a bit of a production, right? I mean, there's a lot of us who are involved and in sort of brainstorming it, obviously, and shooting it and editing it. Like it's, it's a whole thing. And a lot of videos will, you know, We'll have the idea in March and it'll go live in June. Like it's, it's a fairly long sort of process. And those are fun videos and I enjoy making those videos. But sometimes, Mike, I like to get a little creative. Sometimes something sort of tickles my fancy in a way where I just can't resist. And while everyone else in the office is like, oh God, here he goes again. I grab the camera and I start making Austin's creative masterpiece. Mm -hmm. And this is a pretty regular thing. I make a lot of these kind of things. And sometimes they end up all over the place, right? So I did a video on Pokemon cards, which is something that was posted on This Is uh, late last year. That was one of those projects. There, I, I do these probably every month or two, right? Sometimes the projects just get killed for one reason or another. Sometimes they end up on like Facebook or Instagram. But sometimes, Mike, sometimes I ignore everyone else. And I'm like, you know what? <laughs> This is a main channel video. It's my channel, damn I'm it. so excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whose name is on the channel? Yes, Mr. Austin <laughs> Evans. I'm going to hit the upload button. So the <laughs> NFT video was very much one of those, right? It was a topic that, like we kind of discussed last, uh, last episode, that was super interesting to me, right? Like I was so like completely taken aback by how big it was. Obviously, in the last, you know month or so. I mean, we've got crazy stuff like Beeple selling his for like $69 million and just all kinds of just ridiculous stuff, right? The NFT hype is certainly real. So for me, I'm like, you know what? This is going to be one of these like solo Austin videos, you know? So I've spent a few weeks making it, which uh, was part of the reason I think why it did not do well because I was super late on this very basic explainer kind of video. But like I was you know, in there like editing every night, like working on the individual scenes, restructuring it, you know, pretending that I'm a filmmaker and I make awesome movies, right? But like I was way into this video. The problem is, is that the ultimate video wasn't great and it certainly didn't fit on the channel. And I, I think this is one of the things that I kind of put my blinders on to sometimes because if you look at the kind of content that we create, it is very much entertainment that features tech. Right, that's what we make. We make yeah. mystery tech. We yeah. make broke versus pro. Yeah, we make these crazy PC builds. Right, like we make stuff that has this kind of like wow factor at the beginning, 
And there's a whole process, and you know, we try to tell a whole story. Yeah, there was something I noticed actually that because I've really been enjoying um, the amount of PC built videos that you've been doing recently. I, I, I just like watching it. Like I just like watching PC builds. And well, thank you. One of the things that I noticed because I watch a couple of channels, like I, I watch a lot of Linus videos. They build a lot of stuff. But the, the, I think one of the differences that you guys do is it is more visual. Mm, so like, yeah. you, you know, like you're showing slow motion of bending tubes for uh, like a water run, right? Like for your yeah. water cooling run. It's just nice to watch, right? Well, thank like, you. That's the entertainment side, right? Like it's just nice filmmaking of this subject. Like that is a, di- that is a different thing where it's not always educational, but entertainment mm-hmm. but it's yes about, you know, and, and you you do educational stuff I just spoke on our last episode about watching your video about how to build the PC like build the gaming PC right and that's focused on that but a lot of the stuff is entertainment focused so I get that and I appreciate it I actually very much enjoy it it's multiple takes on one type of thing you know like everyone's mm-hmm. in these spaces you're building PCs but you can do it from an informative perspective or an entertainment perspective both are valid yeah, well, well, thank you. Yeah, uh, that's very much what we kind of go for, right? Like, the mm-hmm. channel's been through so many iterations over the last 12 years. The thing is, r- where we are right now is very much aiming at a market, uh, a demographic of audience that is very much not a hardcore tech audience, right? Like, I want to be able to hit the trending page and for random people to be like, huh, that's kind of interesting, and give them an interesting video that features technology but I don't think the average person cares about the benchmarks of an RTX 3080, right? It's much more so about the story behind it. It's much more so, like you said, about the visual component. I mean, look, I enjoy watching, like, you know, home building shows. I don't know how to build a home. I'm not going to go out there and renovate my house. But I appreciate that kind of idea that that is something that you can do. And I find that it's fascinating when people buy houses and flip them. Like, that is all interesting to me. And I try to bring that same yeah. kind of thing to the channel with technology of like, you know, someone might not ever want to build a PC or not might not know how to do it, but it might be interesting to see the process of, you know, building a, a cheap gaming PC versus an expensive one and there's this whole competition element. That's what we try to do. But that's not the way it's always been. And sometimes I forget that. <laughs> and the, the NFT was a great example. That video of, was a great example of it because essentially I made that video like it was still 2016. And we made videos exactly like that in 2016, right? We made videos on like, what is cryptocurrency, right? When Bitcoin was starting to pop off, how to do mining. We did like, what's all like ransomware? Like there was a period of time in which these videos that were five, six minutes performed really well for us, brought in a ton of new audience. And it was the same kind of thing, right? It would be like an explainer. I'm like, okay, here's the deal. There's this thing out there you might not know about or you've heard about. Let me break it down to you. And that was something I really enjoyed. And that was very much kind of the mindset I had making the NFT video. But Mike, I, I, don't, I don't say this lightly. That video did bad. Like, bad. <laughs> can, can you quantify it? Are you, are you able to, like, all oh, want to absolutely. talk about Okay. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, yeah. So uh, for context, right, there are a few different ways that when a YouTube video goes live that we kind of watch the numbers, right? Every uh-huh. time a video goes live... There's a command center set up. It's very much not just like, you know, press the button and forget about it. I mean, it's very much an active process to watch it, to make changes, anything we need to do. Uh-huh. So um, there's this thing called, well, there's a bunch of phrases. There's this thing called the tornado that we watch, which essentially is this like graph of the real-time views on YouTube. So you can kind of see like, okay, 
45 minutes to a video, a video is on average going to have between, I don't know, 50 and 70,000 views, whatever the case is, right? And you can see if you're above the tornado, you've got more views. If you're inside the tornado, that means it's an average performer. If you're below it, then obviously that's a below average, right? So it's one of the helpful metrics among several that we look at. This video wasn't inside the tornado. It wasn't below the tornado. It was like on ground level compared to the tornado. Uh, it, it was one of those things where there was nothing going for it on the back end, right? Like people, we did, I did like a premiere. I tried to hype it up as much as I could, but the problem was people weren't interested in clicking on it. People were already well-versed in the topic, already had strong opinions on the topic. And ultimately people didn't enjoy the video that much, I think was the big thing. Like, like one of the main uh, things that we watch for on YouTube is the retention of like how many minutes people on average watch the video it was very low, even considering that that was a shorter video than usual, right? Like there was nothing going for this video. And so I took it down. It was just, it's still unlisted. So to be fair, if anyone wants to go back, you can find it if you've got the yeah, link. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep the link in the notes so like if people want to watch it, they can go and watch it. Yeah, it, but like the way that YouTube is set up, right? A video that does poorly hurts you way more than not posting that video, right? If I create a piece of content that people do not click and especially people do not watch for more than two minutes or three minutes or whatever, the next video will be pushed less. It will negatively impact the channel. And just from a purely vain uh, standpoint, if I've got a string of videos that have really good view counts and I have one sticking out that has a terrible view count, that's going to be a conversation I have with a sponsor of like, oh, well, what happens if my video gets half as many views? Or if I just, it looks embarrassing, right? So just... On the the vain aspect of things, it's not good to keep those videos up, right? So that video lasted, I think, 45 minutes before I yanked it down, when it was very clear that it was That's not going not anywhere. That's not long at all. I, it was probably 20 minutes longer than it should have been up. It launched okay, wow. and it cratered. Like, like I said, I mean, it was not in the tornado. It was... <laughs> the tornado was like a thousand miles ahead of it. Like, it was very bad, right? So, huh. uh, yeah, I mean it's one of those things where like, I love the content that we make and I like making projects like that, right? For me, a lot of what I get out of that is just making sure that I'm still sharp, right? I mean, it's nice to know that I can still make content start to finish by myself in a way that obviously is not what I do every day like I used to. But it's also a valuable lesson of it's not 2016 anymore and the kind of content that I used to have fun making that people used to watch just simply doesn't work the way it used to. So that's the, I guess that's the, the long and short of, of Austin's NFT adventure. Uh, yeah. Doesn't it bother <laughs> you, though? Oh, dude. It, it hurt, you, man. You can't make what you want. Yeah, but it's a job, man. Like, how many people have jobs who yeah, aren't know. making, like, I, I've been incredibly unfortunate, or I've been incredibly fortunate, I should say, <laughs> to be able to make this stuff. <laughs> <Bloody and slip. laughs> yeah, to, to make this kind of stuff that I enjoy making for a very long time, yep. right? And don't get me wrong at all. I'm not saying I don't like making our normal videos. That is not what I'm saying at all. But I also like being able to creatively fulfill myself. Honestly, it's one of the reasons why I really enjoy doing the test drivers with you, right? This is something that I look forward to every time I look on the calendar. I'm like, ah, test drivers recording day. It makes me smile. It makes me happy. I love doing this. It's something that I really enjoy as a part of my- We get to talk about whatever we want. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, it's a good creative outlet, right? And these kind of videos fill that same kind of niche, right? Of like, it's not, you know, quote unquote work. It's something that I want to do. It's something that's a passion project. And yeah, I mean, obviously it's great when a passion project does really well, but let's be real. Like most of us in the world 
our passion projects are not what pays the bills. Our passion projects are not the things that are massively successful. And certainly there are cases in which that is the, 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 the case. But like, it's just the way it is, right? Like sometimes you got to make something for yourself. And if it works out, great. But if not, you got to just take the, the, I don't know, you got to, you got to take the good of it. You know what I mean? Like it's, I made it, I'm glad that I made that video. I got that out of my system. Okay. Um, I wish that people would have loved it. And in hindsight, it should not have been posted on main channel. It really should have gone on to, to Facebook and to this is and whatnot. But like, it's one of those things where it was something I was really amped up about. And I know that if I didn't make that video, I would have had to make, made something around that topic or it just would have been stuck in my brain forever. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I like that you think this way. I appreciate that you, and I'm happy that you accept it and you're fine with it. It is just a tricky thing for me because it's so different to how I make content. Like, of course, I think about what people want. Um, and, you know, I think about like the feedback that I get and stuff like that. But ultimately, I feel like I'm just beholden to myself, my uh, co creators, and the listeners. But you mm -hmm. also have the algorithm to deal with. Mm -hmm. Where, like, if I make an episode that's not great, and I know that not every episode's a winner, right? Sure. You know, because it's impossible to do that. You can only try your best, and sometimes things don't connect. But I don't get penalized for that from <laughs> uh, an algorithm. Yeah. It's not like one bad episode means you get half the downloads on the next one, right? It's only the difference is like it has to be so bad that listeners unsubscribe. <laughs> and that is that like you have to really mess up for that to happen. But like the the idea of that, like, oh, because your episode wasn't that great, we're now not going to show it to as many people. Mm -hmm. People that have chosen to subscribe to you are now not going to see it. Yeah, I don't like. I really don't like that. And so you know, it kind of the the podcast ecosystem has its issues, right? In the same way that like things don't bubble up to people that don't know who you are, which is something that YouTube does, right? YouTube builds people's careers because of the algorithm, but it yep. also can strip them away from you. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly benefited far more from the algorithm than yep. it's ever hurt me, right? So it's like I am the last person who should be here being like. Oh, poor me. My my stupid NFT video didn't do well, right? Like, I understand we all play by the same rules. And it, with the clarity of hindsight, very obvious that that was my fault and my fault alone, right? But, yeah, it's just like, it's just one of the reasons why I value having other creative outlets besides just the channel, right? It's, it's, it's nice to have mm. other places to make the things that I'm really passionate about. And to have a little bit more fun with, you know? Like, it's, it's just like, I know that the main channel, every upload is vitally important. A bad upload on main channel causes actual, like, you know, you, you can see the damage it does for the next video, for the next project, whatever the case is, like, a bad video hurts the entire sort of downstream project, right? So it's like, that needs to be always, every upload needs to be taken very, very carefully, right? And we certainly make mistakes and we certainly make videos that are bad sometimes, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's part of it. But there are certain mistakes that can be avoided. And this is definitely one of the ones where it's like, okay, next time I'm be like, ah, oh, I want to make this thing, but is it the next NFT video? I don't know. This episode is brought to you by Pingdom. 
Do you have a website? Does your website have a shopping cart or a registration form? What about a contact us page? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you need Pingdom because you don't want any of your critical website transactions to fail because this will mean a bad experience for your users. It could mean lost business for you. The good news is you can set up transaction monitoring with Pingdom. Transaction monitoring will alert you when cart checkout forms, login pages fail, when your site is up or down, when any individual part is struggling before it affects your customers or your business. Pingdom will let you know the moment that anything goes wrong in the best way for you. So you can customize how you're alerted and who is alerted depending on the outage severity so the right person can be there to fix it. Pingdom cares about your users having the best website experience possible. If disaster strikes, you'll be the first to know so you can get there and fix it. It's super easy to get started. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM for a 30-day free trial with no credit card required. Then when you sign up, use the code TESTDRIVERS at checkout and you'll get a huge 30% of your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and RelayFM. We have spent a bunch of time talking about Intel. And I think if memory serves, I have been the pessimist and you have been the optimist a little bit about <laughs> Intel. And they have a new CEO. His name's Pat Gesslinger. He's, I think he's got like, I think he's got like 30 years experience in this business and worked yes. for Intel for like 20 years and he's been gone for a while in other companies but has come back and is running the yep. company. And they had like a big keynote, um, big announcement kind of uh, day last week. This is like Intel 3.0 at this point. Yes. The, the list of things that they are now going to be doing is massive. And honestly seems to be setting Intel back on the right path. And I want to just, before we get into this conversation, right, and it's worth talking about, when there's been a lot of conversation from us and others about Intel, like Intel failing, Intel going in the wrong direction, Intel is still making tons of money. Yep. But they are and have been making decisions that seem to be the wrong ones and was setting them on a path to decline or setting their competitors on a path to take advantage. So, you know, we've seen it. AMD, right? Just making yeah. huge moves, crushing them in places, right? And you don't want that kind of stuff to happen because when it comes to decision points, you people may choose other, other things. Uh, Intel couldn't work out mode, 5G modems. They had to sell their business to Apple. Um, they completely missed the mobile space years ago and ARM is just destroying them, right? Everyone wants ARM chips and... Then you've got companies like Taiwan Semiconductor where the company's making all of the chips for everybody and Intel wasn't doing that. So loads of loads of different areas for attack on them. And they've also been multiple years late on projects that they've been saying that they were going to be delivering you like seven nanometer process and stuff, which is delayed again. We spoke about this before and I said, I bet it's delayed again. When they, <laughs> they said it was maybe 2022. I was like, no way, they're not doing it. And it is delayed again. We'll talk about that. Uh, so lots of different areas where Intel have been dropping the ball as well as then like, you know, they've been making great money and great uh, products for their server partners, but then companies like Amazon are now developing their own chips for AWS. Yes. So, right, it's like loads of areas where they were not making the right bets and it could end up coming to bite them. And now they fired the CEO, new CEO in, they're making huge moves. So the thing is, Pat is, uh, like you said, uh, he worked at Intel for a very long time. But I think the important thing to keep in mind, Pat's an engineer, right? 
he's yep. not a marketing guy. He's not some like you know finance guy. This is an engineer, right? Who actually understands the fundamentals of the business and ultimately what Intel, what made Intel popular for so long. So uh, I think with any conversation like this, you always just have to start out with the the basic idea that there are very long timelines attached to all of this, right? The momentum effect is huge. Intel, like you said, you know, most people are considering Intel to be this, like, this is, you know, the worst place they've been in in years, blah, blah, blah. They're still making ridiculous amounts of money, right? They're still selling so many ships. Like, it's one of those things where the decisions that, like, led them to where they are right now happened four, five, six, seven years ago, right? These ships take forever to put together. The fact that they had all these issues trying to, you know, create their 10 nanometer process and seven and everything, like, that all happened years ago, but we're only really now seeing the fruits of that labor, I guess the fruits of that uh, failed labor, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So what's happening right now is very much, like you said, a reset. Now there's the marketing aspect where, you know, they're throwing some shade at Apple and, you know, they got the whole PC Mac guy, which whatever. So marketing is marketing. It feels so desperate to me. I mean, (laughs) they got to do what the guy do, man. I don't Uh, know. But like, (laughs) it just, yeah, it just it just this this kind of marketing just feels desperate in a way to me. And 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 and, and it makes me cringe a little mm. bit. But, you know, yeah. do your thing, I suppose. Yeah, but there's a lot of good news out of this. Now, like you said, a, a lot of the stuff is not coming tomorrow, next year. Like it, it's sort of future looking, but yes, 7 nanometer is supposedly on track. Um and it is worth just a quick little mention. You can't actually compare Seven nanometer to seven nanometer. No. Like we throw around a lot of these like process nodes. They're actually not the same, right? Intel's is typically better than it sounds, right? So Intel's 10 nanometer, for example, is actually fairly similar to somewhere between the TSMC like five to seven nanometer process as far as like the actual density. Uh, back in the day, they actually you could actually measure these things. Like it was fairly equivalent, but like every chip has you know areas of very high density logic, low density logic, medium. Like there's a lot of like squishiness in these numbers. So you always have to take a lot of these kind of like 10, 7, 5, like these numbers with a little bit of a grain of salt. The bigger issue though is that they would just delay after delay after delay for multiple years on a thing that they said they were going to be doing. That was the bigger yes. problem. It was like, yes. then are you never going to move your chip process forward? Like, are we going to so, be on 10 nanometer <laughs> forever? Well, you say that. We're still on 14. So, um... That's There's true. the 11th gen of desktop chips, which is a basically they've backported some of their newer cores from their 10 nanometer process back to 14, which is a process that came out in 2015, right? So, it a very old process that they've been kind of working, working, working. But basically, they backported a bunch of stuff to a process because not only is there challenge in trying to scale these things smaller. But there's also a challenge in scaling things smaller and being able to hit high clock speeds, right? So essentially, mm-hmm. they are with a far older process able to get more performance because they were able to redesign things. Like, th- there's a lot that goes into this. But basically, the gist of it is this. Yeah, the, the bad times are here, and they're certainly not going to turn it around tomorrow. However, things like being able to make good progress in 7 nanometer, they're bringing out some of that stuff a little early, but it's like for like crazy supercomputer stuff. Like for yeah. the actual consumer, like you said, it's looking like it's likely going to be at least another two years before we really see the fruits of that labor. But they are also now expanding out the foundry situation. So the entire tech space right now, and in fact, a lot of the world are struggling with chip shortages, yeah. right? There's a lot of sort of talk about that. Rightfully so when... 
car man, uh, car plants are idled because they don't have the microchips to go into their airbag controllers or whatever, right? I mean, like, this is a real problem for a lot of industries, right? And let's not forget that Intel, for a very long time, had the best foundries in the world, right? I mean, for years, Intel was two, three, four years ahead of everyone else, right? They were significantly ahead. And that was part of the reason why they were so dominant for so long, because no one could touch them on the design side, no one could touch them on the IP side, and certainly no one could touch them on the actual foundry side. But then they lost a bunch of years with some mistakes and some some issues, and they kind of fell behind, right? So they're getting back on track. They're also now going to be licensing their foundries and creating for third-party companies. That's not actually entirely brand new. They actually have done some of that in the past. And on the flip side, they're going to be purchasing some uh, wafers and whatnot from like companies such as TSMC and Samsung. So uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. They're kind of diversifying in some ways where they're opening up their own fabs to other companies. At the same time, they're going to be purchasing more from others, which makes sense. It's all kind of a little, again, there's a lot of squishiness here and like this product has this and that. The details are important though. So yeah, you're right. They've done some of this stuff before, but what they're going to, they're going to be using companies like TSMC and I think Global Foundry to make chips for them, Mm -hmm. just, you know, to help them continue to push forward. But they're, they're setting up a brand new arm of the company. Yes to create to basically become a foundry for other companies yep. and this is kind of like we talk about this before samsung like samsung mobile and samsung display technically the same company but samsung display is the display manufacturer for the iphone which would seem counter to <laughs> samsung mobile's plans right samsung mobile wants to beat the iphone but samsung display makes the iphone work right but yes this is what this is how this these bigger companies at a certain point you can make even more money if you work with your competitors the enemy of the, my enemy is my friend right like i don't know <laughs> and so they they th- what intel's going to be doing is not just making making chips for other uh, manufacturers, they're also going to be licensing their x86 architectures and their own IP, which is the thing that they've Huge. not done before. And and so like they, even though when they were making stuff for other people, they were keeping their secrets to their chest. They're not going to do that anymore. Uh, and they're going to be building new foundries in the US and the EU, which they would definitely get tax breaks for because the European mm-hmm. Union and the United States uh, are trying to diversify their uh, foundry reliance from China and Taiwan. And this is also why TSMC is building a foundry in America, right? And it's getting a lot of money for doing it. Arizona, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's interesting because also there's, we could talk about this. There's so many layers to this. Like there are a lot of government contracts that like you have to build the chips, you know, in the US or in the EU. Like there's there's a lot of complication here. And especially as you look forward, right? So AMD has already been doing this for a while and Intel's certainly working on it as well. Uh, chips aren't as simple as they used to be, right? Like before, a chip was like, okay, you know, you you put the wafer in and a couple days later on the other end of the, the machine, they spit out the completed CPU, right? Obviously mm-hmm. a little bit of a simplification. But now a single, you know, quote unquote chip or a CPU may have components from different foundries. It may have a bunch of things that are all kind of like glued on top of each other. Like there's a lot of complication here. And as things develop, you know, you may want to shrink your CPU, but the logic around it might not matter. You can use that on an older, cheaper process. So there's just a lot of moving pieces as they try to get every little bit of performance out of these things. So it makes a lot of sense for Intel to take advantage of, oh, 
uh, I'm going to go to you know Samsung and and get you know my GPU fabbed, and I'm going to go to my own foundry and get the CPU. So there's a lot of this that's going to be going on over the next few years. But if you put it all together, it's a lot of very good news for Intel. It's a lot of yep. stuff that it seems like the dark days, even though in like you know for consumers it's happening right now. But if you think like where they're actually at in the design process and setting things up. They're setting up the sort of foundations for a much, much brighter future in two, three years. And it's just going to be a matter of riding the storm between now and then as they've got to kind of work through the pipeline of products that have already been signed off on two, three years ago that are going to start coming out now over the next year or two. So it's good news for them, but it's good news for them, you know, and a little bit later, they're still going <laughs> to yeah, this, be a little rough. This is a very like... Uh reference of the now but it's like you know big ships they get stuck in the Suez Canal ah. and it takes a long time <laughs> to get them out right like this kind of it's a good metaphor for Intel like they beached a little bit uh, and they, they can move it they can turn it they turn the ship but it takes a while right mm-hmm. like you, you these the type of business that they're in you can't make next day changes it just doesn't oh. work that way you can make a decision but it's going to take multiple years to realize it because, mm-hmm. I mean, like for, for some of the stuff they want to do, we're talking about they have to build a factory first, right? And these <laughs> factories like, are among the most expensive factories to build in the world, right? Yeah. We're talking billions of dollars to build yep. these factories. Like, there's like one company that makes the machines for a fab. Like, I mean, it's easy to think like, oh, you know, you know, we have so many different devices around our lives and stuff. It is incredible the amount of companies, foundries, and like machines that can actually make these things are incredibly tiny. Right. So it's like yep. if I'm going to create a fab and I'm going to spend, you know, $10 million per, you know, machine or whatever, I've got to get on a year waiting list to get my hands on one of those machines. Right. Like it's, it's not it's, like you can buy them. They have to be yeah. made for you. Right? You can't just like, yes. I'm going to go to the fab uh, manufacturing machine shop and just buy the robots. <laughs> like this is just not a thing. <laughs> so, yeah, man, but it's, I will say this gives me a lot of confidence in the future of Intel, Right. I do think they're getting more on track. Are they ever going to be as dominant as they were in the early to mid-2010s? Probably not. But are they going to be in a better place three years from now than they are right now? Absolutely. At least from the performance perspective. From the market share and the, you know, the mind share, maybe, maybe not. But I think Intel will be much more competitive once a lot of the decisions that they've made recently start to come to fruition. Do you remember just a few episodes ago... I said, I don't think there's going to be a Galaxy Note this year and they're going to double down on the fold for the second unpacked. Do you remember yes, my Mike. prediction? I, I do remember that particular prediction. <laughs> Might be happening. So there's a couple of reports. Uh, we'll talk about this one first. So there is a possibility that there will be no Galaxy Note this year. And there's a few different reasons for it. One could be because of the aforementioned global chip shortages. Mm-hmm. Like the, And so a lot of companies might just be consolidating their line a bit. I think this is more likely an excuse that Samsung would make as to why one of the reasons they're not making a Galaxy Note this year. But I think that they could be using it as cover for what I opined before of like they want to try and move the Note customers to become Fold customers or mm-hmm. Ultra customers right that you that, yeah that you know they either buy the ultra phone because it can now support the stylus and maybe next year's you could have some and again like you just buy the case and you disintegrate or you buy uh the fold i wouldn't be surprised if if one of the folds comes with an integrated stylus this year as a way to kind of further that narrative 
But there was another rumor that went alongside this that Samsung are looking to try and develop another flip phone, like folding phone. <laughs> but I don't, I can't conceive of this one in my mind. That apparently okay. it would be a three-segment, two-hinge phone, and I can't get my head around what this product would even look like. So, <laughs> imagine a Galaxy Fold that has just one more segment, right? So, like, it's going to be thick. Like, there's no doubt that something like this is going to be thick. But instead of opening up as like a billfold, instead you would have one side of the screen roll out and or fold out. And then the other part. So it would be this like triple sandwich. Like, would it look like a, an actual like, I don't know. Uh, it would look like a double-double from in and out Is that, is that, is that a good reference? That doesn't help me. That? But I can't, uh, I can't work out how you unfold. Like what's unfolding? So you unfold it once. You open one side once. and then the other. But okay. Yeah. So does it all fold in on itself? I think so, right? So imagine it would look like when it's all folded up and closed, it would look like a Galaxy Fold, right? So you've got like some display on the outside. You open that up and then you get half the phone or you get, I guess, two thirds of the phone technically. And then you grab the other side and you open the third or the second segment, the third segment. So essentially it would be like a 33% larger Galaxy Fold with one more fold when you open up the second part. Does that make sense? Like it's certainly going to be thick. Inconvenient. Because the phones, so when it's unfolded, it's going to be larger, right? But you can't mm -hmm. use it in any of the other states, though, surely. You can't just unfold one half and use it, because it'll be, like, tiered, right? Maybe. You might be able to open it with one of the segments folded and the other one closed. Like, I think certainly the idea here is that, obviously, our pockets are only going to be so large, our hands are only so large. If you want to get more screen real estate, you got to add more folds somewhere, right? So... Because what I'll they can't do is have any of the soft screen on the outside. We've spoken about this before. Huawei just made their X2, where they've gone for the, the Samsung Galaxy Note style, right? Where it's like a... Sorry, Z... What is it called? Oh, my God. Z Fold? The Z Fold 2. Right. So where there's no soft screen on the outside. Right, it's now a two-screen device. You have one screen on the outside, you open it up to screen on the inside. So whatever mm -hmm. Samsung do, the way that it folds, you can never expose the thin, soft glass to the outside world. Unless they have some weird reverse fold where like, it actually unfolds twice, but then like you wrap the back of the phone around to the front or something. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I... It, there's no renders. There's no, nothing there's besides nothing except some they might be working on it, right? It, and I think yeah. it came from Nikkei Asia. So it's like yeah. one of the supply chain uh, type reports. She's like, I'm really struggling. Like, I'll say, I cannot get my head around. Because people <laughs> keep linking to like uh, a lot of concepts, right? And there was that, was it Xiaomi who made the little concept where you could, un mm -hmm. like, you could look at the screen and unfold parts from the back? But yeah. that device is never going to get made because it's not durable enough. We've learned this already. You cannot have any of the softer screen on the outside because yeah. it's susceptible to damage. So like I can't fathom what this device would even be. It's very confusing to me. I mean, as proud Z Flip gang members, we uh -huh. have to keep our minds open and ready to to at least Take a look and experience any new folding tech. Yeah, I mean, look, whatever they want to show me, I'm willing to see it. 
right? But I am yeah. just, I'm struggling to work out the benefit of this, you know? I mean, if they're able to do this in some way, which is not ridiculous and requires me to use three hands to unfold it, cool. If they're <laughs> able to get me a phone, which is not going to be two inches thick, cool. I, I'll agree with you that it seems like to me this is not a necessarily smart idea, but I am happy to keep a very open mind and see what the very clever people of Samsung are able to put together with some ridiculous triple fold hinge technique. I mean, it could be cool. And I like the idea of, you know, a fold or yes, a Galaxy Fold with a mega like actual iPad size screen that you can unfold out of your pocket, right? Like Super that's cool. a cool concept. Yeah, yeah. But I, I don't know. I, it just to me like, seems that is great if what you get the rest of the time is a usable phone, right? Mm-hmm. The phone portion has to be usable, but at the thickness and weight that it would have to currently be, it's not. But we go back to the thing that we talk about all the time. So this is what Samsung does. They yep. make devices in their first iteration that are laughable in a way. Like, as in, no one would ever use this. This is too big. This is too thick. Uh, the screen punctures when you touch it, right? Like, these are things that... <laughs> that one's actually other, a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but these are things that other companies don't really do, but it's what Samsung does. And Samsung have to do it so it can become a future thing. Because going back to what we were talking about before, the company that makes the displays that everyone's going to use is also <laughs> Samsung. So like yeah. they, they have to be willing to make these weird moves to push the industry forward, but it doesn't necessarily mean, and it usually doesn't mean, that version one of the product is usable. The Z, the Z Flip is a outlier, I think, in yes. the sense of like it was a new form factor for foldable devices and was immediately usable and has not had a problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just going to just float out there. Uh, I tweeted about this the other day, but I had a nightmare mm-hmm. that Samsung had canceled the Z Flip. Oh, man. And I invested. went on this. I do. I, I like, I like literally in my dream was like going to like Best Buys and trying to buy Z Flips. <laughs> like, you know, like, you remember like when like when they stopped making Blackberries and people were like trying to hoard like old yeah. Blackberry bolds and stuff. That was like me in my dream. I woke up. I haven't stopped thinking about that dream since then. Like, I'm pretty sure there's a Z Flip 3 coming. It's been rumored. It's coming, blah, 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 blah. But, like, I had this, like, deep moment of panic of, like, wait a minute. Is this going to be my life if they kill the Z Flip? Am I going to be, like, on eBay scrounging up, like, seven-year-old Z Flips? Like, ah, I just need an updated battery and I'll be fine for a few more years. Well, I guess if you are uh, a Note customer. Oh. Right? You're potentially in this nightmare right now. Oh, Mike. That's scary. Wait. Wait, you're right. What what happens when all the things we love are no more and we're mm-hmm. old people yelling at clouds? Bring back my foldy boy. Everyone gets phased out eventually. <laughs> this episode of The Test Drivers is brought to you by The IntraZone. I love finding new podcasts. I love binging podcasts. You find a show that you like, go back and listen to the back catalog. There's always great stuff in there. It's one of my favorite things to do. If you're looking for something new to listen to, why not check out The IntraZone? It is a bi-weekly podcast of conversations and interviews on how Microsoft SharePoint, OneDrive, and related technologies can work for you. You'll hear from guest experts behind the scenes and out in the field so you can see how SharePoint can fit into your everyday work life to help you easily share and manage content, knowledge, and applications. 
every episode has a bunch of segments like news and announcements, they have focus topics, guest perspectives, FAQs, and upcoming events. And the topics are really varied and super interesting. For example, some previous episodes have covered AI and machine learning, Office 365, OneDrive, Teams, and Microsoft Stream and how they can all work together, and cloud administration as well. One recent episode that I checked out went deep into how you can best make Microsoft Teams work within your organization. Considering the new challenges in remote working that we face these days, it's a great discussion to how you can uh, help realize Teams for your work place and how everyone can stay on the same page whilst remaining distributed. So go and listen to it right now. Just search for The Intra Zone wherever you get your podcasts. That's I-N-T-R-A-Z-O-N-E. Or just click the link in the show notes. Go check it out. Our thanks to The Intra Zone by Microsoft SharePoint for their support of this show at Relay FM. All right, so OnePlus 9. We it's knew it here. was coming. Uh, there's, this is kind of a... Uh, family of phones right mm. you've got the one yeah. plus nine the one plus nine pro i think they have a one plus nine is it r in certain markets i think it's only in yes. india right now which is a it's basically a phone that sits between the nord and the one plus nine in price mm-hmm. and perspective and performance but we're going to talk about the one plus nine pro mostly because i mean this is the big one. This is the phone people will probably be most likely to look at, or at least this is the one that OnePlus want you to be looking at the most. You have one, right? Yes. So I actually have both the OnePlus 9 and the Pro, although I will say that I have pretty much exclusively used the Pro at this point. Um, this is a phone that's really interesting, right? OnePlus have been on this very constant creep up the price ladder Pretty much every six months, right? Every time there's a new you know, 7, 7 Pro, 8, 8 Pro, 9. Like, I mean, they just keep kind of bumping it up by 30 bucks here, 50 bucks here. And, you know, the, the company who made the flagship killer is long gone at this point. Because this OnePlus 9 Pro starts at $969, right? Nice. Which is, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a lot of money, right? I mean, well, we're look, very much in... You know, saying it, it can still be a flagship killer, but now it's just a flagship as well, right? <laughs> like now it just needs to be good enough that it's better than all of its competitors. And in a lot of ways it is, right? So, I mean, not to bury the lead here, but I mean, it's a good phone, right? I think it has got excellent build, right? They've actually, even though this is subtle and not that important for most people, it's actually slightly smaller than the 8 Pro, which means that while it's still way too big for me to want to regularly use, it's a little bit more manageable. They've also got a nice little like, it does have a curved display, but it's a very subtle curve, which I think a lot of companies have been going for lately. So it's like, it's a comfy sort of phone to use, a little slippery, but it's comfy. It's got a really nice sort of, uh, my model has uh, that silver finish, which is admittedly a fingerprint magnet, but looks very nice in person. Um, it seems to be the only one they sent to people. Like I feel like every review yes. I've seen is just the silver one, but they have, I think, a green one and a black one. And I believe the other two colors for the Pro are matte, whereas this is very glossy. But yeah, that's yeah. silver. I mean, they're admittedly and rightfully so very proud of the material and the finish that they've got in this thing. I mean, it looks very, very nice. I would still 100% like debrand it or put a case on it because big phone plus slippery is a bad combo in my opinion. But regardless, yeah. very, very nice looking phone. It's a OnePlus. No one's surprised that this thing is incredibly well-performant. Um, and one of the things that actually really jumps out to me, I know we're going to talk about the big thing that most people are talking about, but one of the things that really jumped out to me is the screen. 
So on the both the 9 and the 9 Pro, they have 120 hertz displays. The difference is the 9 has like the older display from, I believe, the 8T. So it's essentially the same display as last year, which is totally fine, right? But this uh, 9 Pro has an LTPO panel, right? Mm. So it was essentially one of the main advantages there. It's a new generation of OLED panels. It has not only a great brightness and very good power efficiency, but it also has full dynamic scaling of the refresh rate, right? So even though it's a 120 hertz display, it'll scale not down to 60 hertz or 48 or even 24. It will scale down to a single frame per second to save battery. And the nice thing is it's seamless, right? If you didn't tell me that this is a feature the phone had, I would never notice it because it is completely sort of seamless. As you scroll a page, you know, it's 120 hertz. As the page slows down, it will essentially drop to whatever that resolution is and the panel will just self-refresh, right? It's actually, it's a really, really solid display. What about the fingerprint sensor talking about the display? It seems like it's low down. It's one of the embedded ones. How did it that is. perform for you? It's fine. I mean, look, the gold standard for fingerprint sensors, in my opinion, is still the physical ones on phones like the Z Flip. And the S21 with the latest generation of the Qualcomm under display fingerprint sensor, I would say is right up there. This feels a little bit of a step behind, right? Like I, I'd say, you know, if... The S21 and the Z Flip takes, you know, a tenth of a second to read your fingerprint sensor or fingerprint. This is probably like a quarter of a second. So it's it's a little slower. It's not bad. Um, it's fine. Um, I'll say the big thing, though, that really does jump out about the 9 Pro, and certainly they made a lot of noise about, is the camera, right? Hasselblad. Mike, have you heard the news? It's the Hasselblad <laughs> camera. Oh, boy. It's a, it's a Hasselblad. Woo. Yeah, new camera. It's funny to me when 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 companies do this kind of stuff, and I can and I, I know I, I look, I get it, but does Hasselblad really resonate with people anyway? Uh, I think for certain markets, Hasselblad sounds very fancy. Uh, it would be like uh, I don't know if you had a a Louis Vuitton edition of a phone. I think that would also appeal to a certain demographic. Like, I feel like that's a wider appeal. You know, sure. But I guess on the flip side, I think uh, people who are technically inclined, and uh -huh. generally I would say people who purchase OnePlus phones are probably a little bit more technically inclined. Yep. No one's going to be fooled by uh, an Avengers phone or a Louis Vuitton phone or whatever. Whereas I think there's a lot of press around this phone around the idea that it does have that Hasselblad branding. And you know, people know that Hasselblad make very good and very expensive medium format cameras, right? Here's the thing. I'm sure that the Hasselblad stuff makes a difference, but from what we've seen right now, it doesn't make a huge one, right? So this is a three-year, $150 million partnership, which is a decent amount of money. Right? That's, 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 that's a few bucks. Um, and essentially, they've, right now, so on the OnePlus 9 Pro, Hasselblad has supposedly helped with some of the color tuning, some of the sensor tuning, and they've taken a lot of the Hasselblad kind of like, aesthetic so like they uh when you press the shutter button if you have your sound on it makes a very like hasselblad kind of noise when you go into the pro mode it's got like a hasselblad like kind of theme on it like it's very similar to what other companies have done i mean like vivo for example just announced that they're partnering with zeiss they have these big zeiss logos all over the place huawei for years have um <clears throat> borrowed like a uh, branding for their cameras and whatnot i mean this is not exactly new. And I will say that from what we've seen in the Nokia 9 Pro... I remember Nokia used to work with Zeiss as well. They always had Zeiss yeah. printed on the back of their lenses. 
and Sony has always had a partnership with Zeiss, and I think pretty much all of their phones for years have had Zeiss, like the T-Star coding and like some of the other things. Uh, but look, l- let's be real here. I mean, if you take the Hasselblad name off of this thing, you remove some of the little major or little minor features, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a slightly better OnePlus camera, right? I think that's really what it comes down to, right? So in the future, OnePlus have told me that they do plan to expand the partnership like they just got started. So in the next couple of years, they want to actually do like custom lenses. And we'll talk about that. There's actually some interesting stuff they did do on the 9 Pro, but specifically with Hasselblad, custom lenses, custom sensors, like stuff that's a little bit sort of meatier than just kind of this branding I'm surprised exercise. they didn't do that, um, that concept thing that they did. Do you remember with the the uh, the light, like the lens disappearing? Oh, from, yeah. The, from E3. CES a couple years ago. That was at CES, not E3, yeah. Yeah, the Concept 1. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. It was essentially like, it was it was a deal with McLaren they had where yeah. in some like luxury cars, there's a way where if you have like a, um, like the sunroof, you just press a button and an electromagnetic, or I actually don't even know. It's, it's some kind of electrical process that essentially will like tint the glass immediately. Um, and they had a similar thing where you could basically, with the camera off, you couldn't see like the glass, like the lenses behind it. But as soon as you open the camera app, it would like clear up that glass. It's a cool effect. I think though that the OnePlus guys, they stopped their, they stopped being sponsored by McLaren or whatever that partnership was that, that broke up. And I think that tech is where that came from. So I think that's probably why that never saw the light of day. Um, but look, uh, the camera on the OnePlus 9 Pro is very good right um the main shooter it's a 48 megapixel camera very solid i'd say it's still not quite up to the the samsung's and the apples of the world but it's good um it's some like minor things like they do try to kind of crank up some of the colors and the contrast and specifically they try to crank up sh- uh, the sharpening a little bit sometimes the way that it handles shadows i think it can't be overstated to be honest the fact that oneplus being close to samsung and Apple is a massive achievement. Yeah, but they're also charging Samsung and Apple pricing, right? I mean, I yeah, think... I know. Uh, yeah, <sighs> it's a good, it's a good point. It's a good point. But still, though, like I, I know what you mean, right? Like it, it should be there if they're going to charge that price. But I, mm-hmm. I just think that it's pretty incredible that they've been able to get to this level. Yeah, yeah, and like they're, I, I would say they're ninety maybe 95 no i'd say 90 percent there they're 90 percent there right so the main camera i would say is solid right you get good results but i think where it actually shines more is on the ultra wide right so they've got a i believe it's a 50 megapixel ultra wide but what makes it really special is not only the fact that it has a huge sensor but it also has freeform optics right so essentially the lens can sort of distort itself to compensate for your, you know, typically when you shoot an ultra-wide camera, it's, uh, everything's a little bit bowed, it's a little bit distorted, and in software, you have to kind of, like, crop it in, kind of, like, pinch it, but this, it's actually able to do most of that work in the lens. I've got to say, like, this ultra-wide is the best ultra-wide I've used on any phone. Really, really pleasant. It's nice, and plus, you've got that huge sensor, and on top of that, it has the macro mode, too, so you can actually take the OnePlus 9 Pro, put it, like, within, I don't know, like, an inch or so of a subject, and it will just focus right up on it, right? So, ultra-wide, definitely the start of the show. And you've got, like, a 3.3 times telephoto, which is, it's fine. I mean, it's not anything special. It's not space zoom or anything, but it's, it's like, what you would get on the iPhone or whatever. It's, it's fine, right? I hope that other companies take their lead with the vastly improved ultra-wide. Yes. Yeah. I mean, for context, the sensor on the ultra wide is much larger than even the main sensor on most other phones, right? Like, right. It's, 
they they definitely took the ultra wide very seriously and the wide is fine right so like camera is very good but not quite like i would still prefer the s21 or the iphone right mm -hmm. but it's it's closer like than the oneplus was last year right so they're making steps in the right direction I think the Hasselblad stuff, though, at the moment, I'll give them, you know, the benefit of the doubt for next year. But at the moment, doesn't seem to be much. Branding exercise so far, which right is now, fine. Yes. Which is fine, but I think they've put themselves in a, I think, somewhat awkward position by, I think they've overstated it potentially. Mm -hmm. They've definitely overstated it to where they are right now. So if they're saying this is a multi-year partnership. And now they're like teasing that it's going to be hardware related. Like, you got, I want to see big <laughs> jumps next year. Then I get the impression, right? And this is completely, you know, my opinion. I get the impression the Hasselblad partnership it was a bit of a last minute thing. I don't think the Hasselblad crew had much of, but uh, really any time really to help yep. out on this. Like, this seems like one of those things where a lot of these manufacturers are all sort of fighting over the next sort of wave, which is trying to get some you know, reputable camera brand slap their branding on the back of the uh, the phone. And I think OnePlus jumped on the train just like Vivo and just like Huawei has done, right? Yeah. So, uh, yes, I will say next year, my expectations are going to be very high for whatever crazy stuff they do. But for right now, camera is good, better than last year, equivalent to, you know, uh, like, it's, like it's, it's good. It's good, okay? Okay. The rest of the phone is solid as well. So the charging is just stupid on this thing. 65 watts of wired charging, which to put that into perspective is faster than a lot of laptops charge. And certainly it's a much smaller battery than literally any laptop ever. It's also got 50 watt wireless charging and it's got good battery life, right? So and I they mean, do this because it's two batteries, right? It's two batteries, it two coils, and yep. they can charge yeah, yeah. them. Exactly, uh, exactly. And the nice thing is uh, if you get the warp charger, which to be fair is something you have to spend uh, to, to get extra, you can put your phone in landscape or portrait mode, which is kind of nice. nice. Um, I'll just say like uh, coming from the Z Flip, it does not charge fast in any way. Slow wireless, slow fast, you know, wired charging. It's just not a fast phone to charge. So I'm used to, you know, dropping the Z Flip on the charger 20, 30 minutes here. Oh, it charged 15% or 20%. I, before we were shooting a video the other day, I was at like 19% on the OnePlus 9 Pro, dropped it on the wireless charger for like 10 minutes. By the time I picked it up, it was like 52%, right? I mean, that's it amazing. is like, it's really and yeah, cool. and that's wireless charging, right? That's great. Yeah, you only, you only get the the 50 watt wireless if you use their wireless. Yes. Right? It will do no, it'll, it'll do normal wireless charging, but it's, it's you know, uh, 7.5 watts or whatever. It's, it's the normal, like slower wireless charging. It's also fast. Right. Um, there are some problems, though, uh, specifically here in the U.S. Uh, so OnePlus are selling the 9 and the 9 Pro at T-Mobile stores. So it has full support for T-Mobile 5G. But the other networks like AT&T, Verizon, they're a little hit or miss. I will say I actually have used the, um, the 9 Pro on the Verizon 5G network, and it shows up fine. But apparently, according to them, it's not certified. So it's one of those things, I think, where the phone can support it. It has the bands, but it might not necessarily get the certification or something a little unclear um so that's if you're uh you really care about the 5g might be a little bit of a problem based on your carrier and i will say that the 9 pro does have millimeter wave whereas the standard 9 does not so something to consider but generally speaking I mean, these are good phones right the 9 pro i think does deserve that 969 dollars price tag right i think it is every bit as good 
as something like an S21 or a 12 Pro in many respects, right? Yeah. Terrific screen, killer charging. Of course, it's a OnePlus phone we haven't talked about, but software is clean, snappy, responsive. There's a lot of good stuff here, right? But the thing that makes me just a little bit hesitant is just the fact that, yes, it is a respectable deal, and it is certainly, I think, they have earned the, the right to charge as much as they do. Um, but... <sighs> I don't know how much the average consumer is going to look at that and go, oh, I'm going to spend $1,000 on this. I would probably rather go for the safer option and buy an iPhone or a Samsung. Mm. I wonder how much that is going to impact them now that they're really playing with the big boys, right? I guess that's why they're doing stuff like the Hasselblad thing, right? They, they want to stand mm-hmm. out on the shelf a bit more. Yeah. Because Samsung don't need to do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I don't know how much this really ma- makes a difference. I know in some markets no, it's important. I, I yeah, but I will say though, um, even though I didn't spend as much time with it, the regular nine is I think a better deal. So instead of nine hundred sixty nine bucks for the pro, it's seven hundred twenty nine dollars for the regular nine, and it is very similar. Um, the main camera is slightly downgraded. Um, there's a couple of minor things like it doesn't have the super fast wireless charging. Uh, it's got a flat display, but like almost the rest of that phone is exactly the same. So I think for most people, the regular nine is the better move, unless you really just want like the best of the best that uh, OnePlus has to offer. Um, but I think it's just one of those things where who is going to buy this OnePlus, right? When you can buy an S21 Ultra, which is a better phone, generally speaking. It's similar in a lot of ways, but has some minor things. Like I would say the camera, the entire camera solution is better. And it's certainly from a brand, which is a lot more commonly known, even though their software updates are not going to be as fast, right? You can get an S21 Ultra on sale for not too much more, right? And then of course, you're looking at something like an iPhone 12 Pro, which is almost the same price. It's a very crowded market here. And while the OnePlus is very good and certainly doesn't fall flat really in any major way, it also doesn't really stand out either. Like, it's just kind of a solid option that if you want to go out and buy it, I'd say absolutely go for it. But I'm not going to be here like I would have been a couple of years ago saying, hey, check out this new company called OnePlus. They make killer phones. You're going to save 300 bucks. It's great, right? It's not like that anymore. It's just like they make a very good phone for the price that they should. The end. Which, it's different, man. OnePlus, uh, yeah. I mean, it's certainly, it's not something that, I don't want to say they're making a mistake or anything like that. And they're certainly going down to the Nord line. They have like the 10 or the 9R and whatnot. But it's just not as compelling, I think, as it's been in the last couple of years. Now that they're really charging full flagship prices. Are they making phones, like, are they playing to their base? I, the base is not happy with this. Right? Is that is that the difference now? From what I've seen, um, the OnePlus sort of crowd is very vocal. Um, or at least the, the hardcore technical crowd. Uh, there's not a great response to this phone, right? Okay. I don't think people are super amped about it. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, generally people are like, oh, it's the OnePlus 8 Pro, but a little better. Pass, whatever. Like, I, that's been the kind of general response that I've seen. Uh, which is hard to argue with. I mean, it is a better phone, but it's certainly not something that gets me super excited. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, this is better. That's That's good. That's cool. I think they kind of, for me, they dropped the ball on the design a little bit, like the overall design of the phone. Because 2020 was a year of their main competitors really doing a good job, right? Samsung and Apple both turned out very good-looking phones. And, like, especially Samsung. You know, like, the new Samsung phones, they look fantastic. Like, the the embracing of the camera bump and stuff. I think they did a really good job. And 
this one feels, I don't know, like a little boring or like I feel like I've seen it before. Yeah. The camera bump's kind of nice. The finish is nice, but it's, uh, (laughs) you remove the OnePlus logo and uh, most people are going to be like, oh, it's a phone. Yeah, got it. This episode of The Test Drivers is brought to you by FitBod, the fitness app that provides a personalized exercise plan, a fitness plan that actually fits you. When it comes to fitness, FitBod believes that everyone can be better. Whether you're working out three days a week or twice a day, FitBod's algorithm uses data and analytics to help you build on your previous workouts so that your next is scientifically proven to be better than your last. FitBod has been fine-tuned by certified personal trainers to bring you the best practices of strength training. Your workout program is tailored exactly to your needs, making it perfectly suited to your unique body experience, environment, and goals. Look, it can be hard to know exactly how much you should be doing while exercising, so FitBod figures that out for you so you don't have to worry about under- or overtraining. It's also going to mix up muscle groups, exercises, sets, reps, and weight over time to keep you on top form and to keep things varied. So you don't have to spend tons of hours researching what the best strategies are to get the results that you're looking for because FitBod does it for you. If you're working out at home, FitBod has a bunch of bodyweight-only workouts. These are great for indoors or outdoors, but if you have access to gym equipment they have tons of great options there for you as well i really love uh fitbod's apple watch app i think it's really great like so they have great videos inside of the app itself so you can go in and you can like watch how the exercises are done but if you've done it a bunch of times you don't need to see that and also i like to not be able to look at my phone when i'm working out stretching that kind of stuff so i don't get distracted so i love that the apple watch app just tells me what i need to do and i can advance to the next part of the workout from there it's really really great fitbod is available on ios and android and you can get started right now by going to fitbod.me/testdrivers and you'll also get 25% off your membership that's fitbod.me/testdrivers to try out fitbod for free and get 25% off your fitbod membership our thanks to FitBot for their support of this show and Relay FM. So we're going to talk about something a little bit different. So one of the hobbies that Austin and I share is Formula One. So oh yeah, motorsport. So because it's something that Austin convinced me to get into, into suggesting that me and my wife Adina watch a Netflix documentary called Drive to Survive, and you recommended this to me while we were eating Korean barbecue together in LA last year. Yes. So we were all eating dinner together. So it was me and my wife and you and your wife. And you were both telling us how great this documentary was and that we should watch it. So when we came home, we were like, oh, we'll check it out. Austin really liked this. He convinced us. And we binged the entire first season of the show. It's on Netflix in one night. We stayed up until like 4 a.m. Because we started <laughs> watching it late in the evening and then just couldn't stop. And now we are devoted F1 fans. We've watched, there have been two seasons of the Drive to Survive. We watched those. We watched the entire season last year, every race. And the Formula One season kicks off this weekend. And the third season of Drive to Survive just dropped. And they had tons of stories for this year because the 2020 season was full of so much drama. There was COVID-related drama, driver drama, team drama. And there was a couple of... There was one particular huge crash where uh, mm-hmm. one of the racers, Romain Grosjean, uh, he escaped of his life. I mean, you if you watch news, you probably saw this. This was world news because the crash was so bad. So yeah. we wanted to talk about this because it's just a thing that we enjoy and we wanted to talk about. 
Yeah, I mean, come on, we're the test drivers, right? Drivers. Drive to survive. Drivers. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So I guess we should give a spoiler warning. If you uh, have not followed or if you plan on watching Drive to Survive, we're definitely going to talk about some of the things that happened throughout the season and some of the stuff that was, uh, you know, obviously in the, at the F1 calendar. But look, man, I love F1. My dad grew up watching F1, and it was one of those things that as a kid I always, like, appreciated and loved, you know, watching, like, Schumacher win 400 mm-hmm. million championships and stuff. But it was something that I kind of dipped out of for a while there. And Drive to Survive is absolutely what snapped me back into watching every race. And, you know, we've gone to some races since then. And, you know, I wake up at 6 a.m. and watch qualifying on Saturday mornings. Like, look, I I love it, man. I love it. And season three, I think, was a great way to get into the sport, right? So if you're listening and you've never cared about F1, or certainly if you've never really gotten into everything, Drive to Survive is literally designed to bring a new audience into Formula One, whether you've seen it before or you're just vaguely interested. They explain stuff so well. Like, you don't have to know, you don't have to know anything. But even if you do, it's not overwhelming the amount of, like, you don't get bored because you feel like you're being taught the sport you know. So they, mm-hmm. they, but they like really walk the fine line there. Yeah, yeah. And there's like so much just ridiculous that happens, right? Like, of course, they heavily trim it down, right? So, there are 20 drivers in F1. I'd say 14, 15 of them actually get like any real screen time in the show. They cut like certain storylines and races out. So it's not like a blow by blow. And certainly if you're watching every F1 race, some races are boring, right? Sometimes Lewis drives away and uh, the end, an hour later, he's on the podium and it's it's all over, right? But there's certainly some crazy things that happen. I'll say I wish he wasn't the biggest fan of season two, but season three, I think, was good in many ways, right? So uh, there's a lot. There's a lot to talk about here. Yeah. So I think I first say of all, season three is my favorite of the three seasons. Season mm-hmm. one being the second. Season two. Season two's good, but it's just it can't live up to season one because they were just lucky that the first year that they shot the show, just a bunch of stuff happened. Like a lot yeah. of really big things happened, and it, mm-hmm. it, it is kind of you know th- this is a funny thing about a documentary like this, and it is dramatized. Like you know they they take some liberties, but I don't think they take too many. You know, like they take the stuff that really happens, and then they try and sew some things in to make a little bit more drama. They omit things. They make so- like you know every time someone crashes, they make it seem like it's a lot longer between <laughs> the when the person crashes and when they radio through to say that they're okay. You know they take some liberties, but it does that stuff doesn't bother me. They're trying to build a dramatic documentary at the end of the day, right? But mm-hmm. You know, they they only ever have to build on what happens. And if the season's not dramatic, they can't make a dramatic show out of it. But. Yeah. And I mean, uh, season, uh, like 2020 was dramatic, right? So for context, mm. right? Uh, I mean, this is a spoiler for the first episode. But um, F1, the season was beginning in March of last year, right as COVID was hitting, right? So yep. everyone was there. The first Grand Prix of the year was in Australia. Everyone's there, right? And literally the like I don't know, like the day before or like a few hours before the first practice and everything is kicking off, uh, some team members from the McLaren race team got uh, confirmed that they had COVID, right? The yep. whole team pulls out. And literally hours before everything kicks off, the entire Grand Prix is canceled. Everyone goes home. Like, I mean, it was like down it to was the wire. The same weekend where the NBA season was canceled. Yep. Everything happened very fast. You know, people reference it a lot of like, oh, in one weekend, like the NBA and then Tom Hanks got it, but like also the Formula One season was postponed, right? Like, mm-hmm. but they were ready to go. All the fans were there, the teams were there, they were ready. I think it was like the Saturday, which is yeah. when the races are on Sundays, and they were like, nope, we're done. And so 
it was kind of interesting. The first episode focuses on that. And what I actually quite liked about the season is they only really talk about COVID in one episode. Like they don't mm-hmm. keep going on about it, even though it was a thing that kept obviously affecting the season. But it's yeah. just, they really, for the rest of the show, it's just treated as it was in our lives. Like it was just a part of the world and is a part of the world right now but mm-hmm. it wasn't something that they just kept focusing on as the main focal point which i, I actually quite liked but it, it, it was interesting that the in that first episode you know all the drivers are making jokes they're like ah oh, do i have to wear these masks yeah. all that kind of stuff and like it's you know it's it's <laughs> it's rough to watch now but yeah that was what everyone was doing then because yeah. it didn't oh, feel like it was going to be that much of a problem right uh, Absolutely. Yeah. It's, yeah. I think they did a really good job of kind of setting it up because essentially, just to fast forward a little bit, essentially the F1 season got shifted forward. I think it got started in June or July. July. Yeah. And a lot of the races got canceled and then they had to kind of like restructure everything, right? So a lot of tracks hosted like, you know, two uh, races back to back on different weekends. Uh, Everything got kind of shuffled around. Um, Actually, several of the drivers did contract COVID throughout and missed a race or two. Like there was a lot of stuff that happened. But even outside of that, it shook up the season in a pretty exciting way, right? So not only were some drivers out and then they had like substitutes come in and that was kind of exciting, but also some of the tracks that they raced at last year were tracks that either F1 had never raced at or hadn't done in years. And it made for really exciting TV and racing, right? Because it leveled out the experience. You know, like some of the racers who've been racing for years, they really know the courses Mm -hmm. because they've driven on them for years. And like they have simulations and it's funny that like loads of the younger drivers at least play the Formula One games and like use those Formula One games as practice, (laughs) which makes a lot of sense. You know, they have the racing wheel like you have, right? Obviously a better one than you, I'm assuming. Uh, (laughs) They have like their whole little thing that they (laughs) sit in and they drive, you know, they they race. And it was funny because they were showing a bit of this. One of the drivers, especially Lando Norris, he became a big Twitch streamer during the like the low period and like continues to now, but like he plays formula one a lot. Right. Yeah. And that was actually a thing. So in the meantime, in between when the first race was canceled and they kind of actually got started, a ton of the drivers are doing the esports, the virtual Grand Prix, right? And like, I would say that like a lot of the, the individual races, cause they were like, you know, they would race on the, the weekend they was supposed to be, you know, in Vietnam, or whatever, they would race on the track and the game. And it was actually kind of cool watching that because I mean, some of those races had like six, seven, eight real F1 drivers racing and they had a bunch mm-hmm. of celebrities and stuff, but it was cool. Like it was actually really interesting to watch that side of things. But man, Formula One, it's a it's a great sport. And it's one of those things where I think if you're watching Drive to Survive, there are a lot of moments that are very easy to understand if you know nothing about the sport, right? Everyone knows Ferrari. Everyone knows that if you go out and purchase a Ferrari today, you're spending $200,000 on the car and you're giving a $100,000 donation to the Ferrari F1 team, right? I mean, that's just, it's synonymous with F1 and racing. And Ferrari in 2020 absolutely had their worst season in like 30 years, Mm -hmm. right? It was unbelievable. And there was so much drama in the driver market. And it's controversy as well, because, you know, there was like uh, with Ferrari, there's some like unknown penalty that they were facing that was all hush hush and behind closed doors. And they focused on that a little bit, which was really interesting, too. Yeah, they fired their four time world champion driver, Sebastian Vettel, before the season got started. So the entire year that he you know, once they actually got started in, in racing, uh, he knew that he was being kicked out and he did not care at all. And Netflix actually got some really good moments of like, he like, I love like the, the weekend of the Italian Grand Prix 
like it's this big deal. It's for I think it's their thousandth race that weekend. It's you know their home thing. It's a hugely important thing. And Seb's like, oh yeah, by the way, I'm moving to Aston Martin. Peace. And it just like yep. totally stole the thunder. <laughs> and like Netflix was in the room. Is like you know he's like getting his like brief before the race. And like uh, so you know Seb, I'm sure you you didn't mean to step on our thunder. He's like, oh yeah, you know it was uh, oh it was wasn't my call. It was just it's it's so Very, good to see yeah, some of this good. just. <laughs> all the ferrari stuff like the the way that the like pr team were treating oh. they treat the drivers in general but were treating sebastian vettel especially it's like oh my god this is so but like they're so like there's one moment he has his mask on and he has it on upside down i'm like yeah. oh could you please turn it over because the ferrari logo is upside down it's like oh my god like you're like working telling- people like this it's like this is the worst like the pr teams are so like they're so I think they're all hands-on in general, right? Because there's 20 races and they are the front of these multi-million dollar organizations and also representing companies, other like multinational $100 billion corporations that sponsor these companies. So like the drivers are the faces of all, like, you know, and it goes down. It's like, you know, they're, they're already being endorsement deals and stuff. So they are handled in these ways of like, you are effectively a billboard and you mm-hmm. must be good, right? And so yeah. it's it's like this really awkward relationship that they seem to have sometimes with the teams, but it's, it seems to play out differently with different people. And with Ferrari, it just seems very aggressive. It's such. It seems like such a toxic sort of environment, right? I, I just loved that that moment when she like she asked him. She literally like turned to the cameras like, "This is not to be filmed. Can you flip your mask upside down?" And of course, they absolutely used that footage. I was like, "Ah, love it, Netflix. Love it." There's a lot of moments like that. <laughs> but the contract that they have must be very good of F1 because constantly the teams are like, "Please don't show this," or like, "Oh, they're not going to include this part," and they uh-huh. always do. <laughs> so they must have a like. This this feels very much like, especially in the first season. In the first season, the only teams that are involved are the small teams. Mm-hmm. And it feels like that, you know, like Formula One made this deal and then the teams kind of opted in or whatever. And then it moved on from there. And it seemed to do well enough that in the second season, they get all the big teams. All the teams are in it. But it does seem like to me, this is a deal that, that the production company Netflix has with, with Formula One, the organization, and basically, whatever happens, happens, and they're allowed to use whatever they want. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it's cool too, because I think one of the things that I always like with Drive to Survive is not only sort of refreshing myself on some of the races, but some of the stuff they get behind the scenes, right? Because essentially, what happens is so to shoot this, Netflix embeds with the team, right? So, yeah. especially with the during the, you know, the year of COVID and everything, they were like fully like in the team's bubbles. There's all kinds of sort of complications to actually make a completely international sport that travels from country to country during the middle of a pandemic actually possible, right? So part of the thing that they do is they really embed with the teams. And as sort of part of that, it's cool because they really do kind of go behind the scenes because, of course, there's tons of media and tons of, like, interviews and stuff. But it's also cool because Netflix kind of gets these sort of behind-the-scenes sort of conversations. Dude, we got to talk about Gunther. We got to talk about Gunther, man. Oh, my God. So so there is a single American uh, F1 team called Haas, right? So they also have some other race teams. Like they have like a NASCAR team and whatnot, but they have an F1 team. And in 2020, which actually, to be fair, this is not unique to them. Some of the other teams also had the same problem of, you know, when you're not racing and your entire business is built around sponsorships, uh, there's no money. So not good, right? So Haas in particular had an incredibly difficult 2020 to the point where like they barely scraped by just, you know, not just closing their doors. 
But their team principal is a guy named Gunther Steiner. You've probably seen the memes of him, right? He is, uh, first of all, as even on like network television, like on the actual races, has dropped the F-bomb like multiple times, which is always really funny personally for me. <laughs> but especially in, in Drive to Survive, you can tell that like he's trying his hardest to keep this team from collapsing and will do anything he can to get sort of some promotion or whatever. So like he lets like, I couldn't believe he let Netflix in as he's like going to meet with a sponsor and try to convince them why they need to give him like $5 million or whatever. It's like Netflix are in the room as the team are literally like, yeah, you should fire one of your drivers and hire someone who's German because we're a German German company, we care. And he's like, like, all right. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, okay, cool, I'm going to fire one of my drivers who's worked for me for five years. It's like, it's stuff like that that I love to see because it's like, you can imagine how those conversations go. You know that's kind of what's going on behind closed doors. But to literally see it happen on Netflix, it's just like, wow, it's crazy, man. Yeah, I mean, and like if you follow the season this year, like the guy... Yeah, you know, basically, they has sold their soul <laughs> to, oh. to this Russian company. It's like unbelievable to watch. But you know, it's <laughs> yeah. like the guy who owns Huss, Gene Huss. It's a they are a like um, they make like machines for CNCing and stuff like that. They make like, funnily enough, we're talking about factory stuff. Like this is the kind of stuff that Huss does. Um, and it seems like that the owner is like wants out, right? Yeah, or like he just doesn't want to put as much money into it anymore because Huss the race team I've had a couple of bad seasons and you know he's pouring all of his money into a losing team so they mm-hmm. needed a rate a driver uh who was going to bring lots of money and they've done that and the guy uh Nikita Mazepin who is very controversial mm-hmm. as a figure in multiple increasingly yep. worse ways and uh he is of Russian descent and has a lot of Russian sponsorship so has have working with seems like they're one of the reasons they're working with him is to get that russian sponsorship money and then they basically painted the russian flag onto the car and it's like oh my god it's like and you can go it there's so many reasons why that uh, is problematic right yeah. now and it's like oh my you know and so it, it is shown in this season though leading up to it that like he'll do whatever it takes to get the house name out there i guess it's yeah oh man I'm- uh, and then, oh god, yeah, like the amount of times he's been caught on a hot mic, I mean, just, it just blows my mind. Like, yep. I just swear, like he just wears the Netflix mic twenty four seven, and they're just like, they just follow him around, like, ah, <laughs> what's Gunther gonna say this time? Like last season, there was this famous moment where like he's like screaming at his drivers, and one of them smashes the door, and he's like, "You're fired!" If you, oh, it was, it was so many good moments. Yep. But anyway, Gunther's great. There are also some like really emotional moments. Like, come on, when Pierre Gasly won, oh. I'm not gonna lie, I. Because okay, so for all of the the test drivers listeners, right? The way that Mike and I watch F one is we will watch it live, and we are yep. constantly texting each other the entire race. Mm-hmm. I don't think there was a dry eye between the two of us at the no, end of that race. We were race. both like, yeah, "I'm crying, <laughs> I'm crying." <laughs> I was so happy my wife wasn't there. I was like, "I'm fine, <laughs> I'm fine." Nope, I'm not crying right now. <laughs> Yeah, so that that was like a very beautiful episode, and then of course, like it's also super emotional when they focus the episode on Roman Grosjean because they had his mm. wife Marion on the show too, which is a really nice touch because she got to talk about what it was like to watch her husband basically oh. believing that he's dead because his crash was so bad, uh, just believed that he was dead. It was like two minutes and thirty seconds where not where from the crash to where you see that he jumps out of these flames, and I think that was how long it was, and. She just assumed that her husband died in this crash, and it was oh man, uh, it was a beautiful conversation. It's just mm. this horrifically dramatic moment. Like I'm really pleased that, that that someone was able to document it at least, like to see what it is like to go through something like that 
as both the driver and the car, because basically you could hear Roman basically talking about coming to terms with. Um, it's brutal. It, the show is worth watching even just for this one episode so you can yeah. see the kind of risks that these guys take and also the effect that it has on their families too it really is it's they always talk about it like in, they're always talking about it always talk about the risk and talking about like how hard it is and you can see in some of the previous seasons some of the previous episodes like what it does emotionally to the family members of the races when they're driving right you can you can see their reactions but this was like a a real look into exactly what that danger is is kind of unbelievable the, i mean if you have not seen footage of that crash like watching it live it's it's like one of those things where like he <sighs> crashed into a wall at like 140 miles an hour immediately a huge fireball right the car F1 just exploded is, and then was in half it's like in yeah. half like f1 used to be so back in like the 70s and 80s horrifically dangerous right like drivers would die regularly in f1 like it was incredibly dangerous it's gotten better over the years, but uh, still accidents happen. I mean, these are incredibly fast vehicles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this crash was one of those things where they had just got a, a, a restart. I, I, I would almost say, like, if you're knowing that it had a happy ending, I think it's, it's totally happy to go and, um, like, watch that crash because it was unbelievable. But the TV directors immediately cut away from the accident. And you know, when you're watching that live, you know that's very bad. And there was nothing. Like, commentators just trying to, like, kind of awkwardly, like, kind of fill time you had cut to some of the radio of the drivers like like worrying like oh no oh no i saw it i saw it like that was the moment like i can feel for the way his family was like because watching that live i just screamed right like it just it was like so horrible and it was as they were saying like you hear him say it in the show saying it afterwards like those cars are not supposed to cut in half right never like that's not supposed to happen like it was just presumed that there's no way that someone could walk out or something like that because none of this the cars are designed specifically not to do all of the things that happened yeah yeah i mean he went 140 miles an hour directly into a wall it was like 60 g's of impact like literally just like straight into the wall and then just like stopped right like it was just literally 140 to zero the entire thing exploded like it was incredible thankfully he survived and uh, he's actually already back racing again um so He's, uh, the he's, one, though. he's in, yeah, I think he's moved to IndyCar. He was, to be fair, though, this accident didn't make a difference. He was actually already, uh, well, if you watch the show, uh, he was already uh, on he his way, way out, out anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, this is not the way I think anyone thought that he was uh, on the way out. But it was, it was a truly incredible sort of thing. And I think that the season of Drive to Survive and the season of F1 was excellent, right? There were so many like great races. There were so many great moments. Uh, we've talked about before the show. Um, I'm so happy they didn't show the George Russell stuff because like... Yep. That was the saddest thing. I don't even know if we have time to get into that. I but like, can't talk about it. Yeah. We, <laughs> let, if you know, you know, right? That was the saddest yeah. thing that happened last year. But like, it's one of those things where if you are even vaguely interested, like if this sounds cool to you, I would highly recommend give Drive to Survive a shot. It really opens up. I think a lot of people who are interested in F1 are interested in it now because of Drive to Survive because they do such a good job of taking something which is inherently an incredibly interesting sport, right? I'm not a big sport guy. I don't think you are either, but like it's I'm not incredibly at all. It's my only sport. It's, it's easy to follow because there's only 20 people to keep track of. You know, it's mm-hmm. 10 teams. It's it's easy to follow, and I like there's a lot of drama. There's a lot of stuff even when the sport isn't actively happening for you to keep up with, and it's a fun. I enjoy. I just really enjoy it. It's a fun thing. It's a couple of hours every few weeks to watch the races, and there's so much. And you can be as into it as you want to be. I, I, I think I 
have no tolerance for sport. I don't enjoy any other sport. I never have. And this is, the, and I am like super invested into this. It's just the right mix of things for me. Yeah. So if you're curious, Netflix, Drive to Survive. I don't even think you have to start from season one. You can start with season three. They do a good yep. job of explaining everything. Like certainly if you know more of the context, it's nice. But like you can watch that season. And I think anyone, if you're even vaguely interested in this stuff, I think would find it to be a really interesting watch. Is that it? Did we yep. just do our test drivers drive to survive hybrid video hybrid think, episode our video look at you you can't get it out <laughs> in my yeah this is a hybrid episode we've put the drivers into test drivers <laughs> so this is just the plan all along when we named uh-huh. the the show we're like ah you know what we're gonna finally on episode Pivot 29 get an f1 <laughs> <laughs> okay if we talked about pokemon cards and keyboards for this that's long, true it's it's only a matter of time the show that's is just true. gonna turn into austin and mike's uh happy fun corner where we just get to Mm -hmm. rant about whatever we want and we just take you all along with us and there's no algorithm to stop us (laughs) let me tell you about another show on relay fm top four hosts tiff and marco can make a top four list out of anything and it will probably make you delightfully furious indulge in the randomness and listen for yourself at relay.fm slash top four or search top four wherever you get your podcasts